discussion relating to the leadership of the church. The church is the bride of Christ. The Lord, the Lord deeply loves that body which comprises His people, and so He cares how it is led. And He's given us good instruction to that end. So before we read that, I'd like to read um, a couple of brief passages that talk about the leadership of the church, but also the way in which they lead, the direction in which they guide us. So looking at Matthew 7 first, and then we'll turn to Titus 1. Matthew 7, starting in verse 15. Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because... It had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Amen. Looking to Titus chapter 1 then, Paul writes to Titus as he's laboring in Crete. He says, this is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families and teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Amen. Now, Article 32 of our Confession summarizes some of the things that we see in those passages. 
when it tells us in the meantime we believe that though it is useful and beneficial that those who are rulers of the church institute and establish certain ordinances among themselves for maintaining the body of the church, yet that they ought studiously to take care that they do not depart from those things which Christ our only master has instituted. And therefore we reject all human inventions and all laws which man would introduce into the worship of God, thereby to bind and compel the conscience in any manner whatsoever. Therefore we admit only of that which tends to nourish and preserve, concord and unity, and to keep all men in obedience to God. For this purpose, excommunication or church discipline is requisite with all that pertains to it according to the word of God. Amen. Beloved disciples in our Lord Jesus Christ, rules can be a blessing. Rules can be a blessing. They let us know the way that we should go. They let us know what's expected. You want to see a child that is deeply unhappy. Look at a child whose parents have set no rules, who have established no boundaries. That child is deeply unsettled because he doesn't know what he should do, what he shouldn't do, what's expected of him, what's not expected of him. He's adrift. And no one has cared enough to set the rules and to explain the boundaries. And so it is too in the church. In recent weeks we've seen that God deeply cares about the government of the church. He cares what sort of government leads the church. He cares whom the church raises up as leaders over it. God wants the church because it is His body. Because it is His kingdom. He wants the church to be governed in a way that nurtures it and that glorifies Him. And to that end, the church has to, needs to, establish certain rules. But not all rules are created the same, right? Not all are of equal importance and not all are wise. And so we have to consider what kind of rules ought to govern the church, ought to be imposed upon the church, and what kind ought to be discarded. Further, we have to consider why we should follow those rules and what to do when someone determines not to. That might seem unimportant. With so much happening in our world, with all the things we see in the headlines, with the way we see our society deteriorating before our very eyes. Do we really need to care about the rules of the church? But here's the thing. In the midst of all that's happening in our world, in the midst of all of this turmoil and upheaval, God is building His kingdom. God is doing that in us, in the church collective, and in the members of the church. He is equipping us for life in eternity. He is equipping us for when He renews all the world and makes it perfect. And He sets us in it to exercise dominion, to live as His people in the midst of all that. And therefore, it is essential that we understand what the church ought to look like, what the church ought to busy itself with, how the church ought to be governed. Because if in the church disorder reigns, then there is no refuge from a world filled with disorder. 
And the church, the church should be the antithesis. The church should be the polar opposite of what we see out in the world. What we see in our society is disorder writ large. We see increasingly anarchy, division, hatred, politicking in the worst sense of the word. When people look at the church, they should see something distinctly different than that. And to that end, we need the kind of rules that God commands us to have. As we look at that, as we consider how God calls the church's rulers to apply His commands, that's really what we're talking about, how God commands His rulers to apply His commands, we see first of all that He establishes the church on the solid rock of God's Word. This is the positive sense in which the church needs rules in order to establish the church on the solid rock of God's commands. Now, our confession talks about the rulers of the church instituting and establishing ordinances. What, what does that mean? Ordinances are just rules that men make. And there are plenty of folks who would say, why? We have the Bible. Isn't that enough? I mean, what do we need creeds and confessions and church orders and policies. We don't need all that stuff. We've got the Bible, that's enough. But the problem is, the, everyone interprets the Bible. When the Jehovah's Witnesses, or the Mormons, or some other cultist shows up at your doorstep, they're going to have a Bible in their hands. It is, by and large, the same Bible that you're using. But they interpret it radically differently, don't they? And so the leaders of the church are called to establish ordinances of the sort that will help us to understand and apply God's Word in a way that builds us up, in a way that strengthens us, in a way that guides us into the truth, and in a way that doesn't allow us to be divided by sin. We see an example of those kinds of ordinances in, in Acts 15. Acts 15 describes a time when the church was rapidly growing. Now, rapid times of growth in the church are exciting and encouraging, but they're also dangerous because growth brings change, which is hard for us, and Satan hates it when the church grows. So when the church grows, when the church, whether it, it grows numerically with more people coming in or when it's spiritually growing, when people are gaining maturity, Satan will attack. He'll try to divide us. He'll try to stop that growth. And so it was with the apostolic church as it grew, expanding throughout Palestine and Asia Minor. Until this point, the church was essentially Jewish. Everybody was really pretty much on the same page. But when the Gentiles started coming in, Conflict began to grow. We read in Acts 15, some men came down from Judea and they were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And a little farther on, they said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now that was a significant conflict. Because you see, it dealt with the ceremonial law given through Moses. How do we apply this word that God gave to Israel in the past? When the church was all Jews, they pretty much just kept the ceremonial law. They had grown up doing that. They knew it. They loved it. It kind of defined their life, right? So they didn't eat unclean meats. They didn't wear clothing that were comprised of two different kinds of fabric. They kept all of these commands. 
And that was fine. But then the Gentiles started coming in. And not only did they not inherently know these ceremonial laws, the way the Jews did, but they perceived, they recognized, Jesus fulfilled these ceremonial commands. Why should we continue to keep them? They pointed forward to His coming. He came. They're fulfilled. They threatened to split the church. And Scripture alone wouldn't settle the specific questions they were asking, so they convened a church assembly, essentially the first synod in Jerusalem. There the apostles were gathered, along with the leaders of the churches from various places. They set the issue before them, they discussed it, they debated it, they prayed about it, seeking guidance from the Holy Spirit, seeking to apply the passages of Scripture that, that impacted it. And finally they concluded, you know, the Gentiles do not need to follow the ceremonial law. It has been fulfilled by Christ. But for the sake of the peace and the unity of the church, there are certain commands that they should keep. Because otherwise it would be deeply offensive to the Jews. Right? And in a couple of the cases, because they're not just ceremonial, they're also part of the moral law. And so they wrote a letter telling the churches it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. And then they laid out a few uh, prohibitions, a few things that the church, Jew and Gentile, should not do so as to not give offense and so as to not violate God's moral law. Now the thing is, it didn't violate Scripture in any way. But at points, the rules that they came up with in that Jerusalem synod, they went beyond Scripture. They applied Scripture in a way that would unify the church. Now, our confession talks about three reasons for which rules, ordinances are important to the church. One of them is doctrine. Helping the church to understand what it should do, what it should be. When Jesus was preparing to depart, he said, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, that is, bringing them into the church, making them part of the kingdom. But then he said, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. He wants us to show our faith by our obedience. And so some of the ordinances, some of the rules that we adopt are meant to teach us how to obey the Lord. Jesus said in John 14, verse 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And so the rules of the church should, should end or should work toward that end of teaching us what we need to believe, what we need to do. But also, it should nourish and promote concord or peace. In other words, sometimes we need to adopt rules that will keep us from fighting, that will head us off at the pass before we, uh, before we get into a conflict. We need to preserve peace, and also unity. We should be one. But we can't be one if we don't agree, if we don't understand uh, what we're to believe, what we're to do, how we're to live. So to promote peace and unity and to teach the church what to believe and do. These are the reasons for which the church is to adopt these ordinances. And we see evidence of of those purposes in the ordinances that our church has adopted. Chief among them would be 
the three forms of unity, our confessions. The Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Canons of Dort. Our, our elders and our deacons and our minister all subscribe to these. That is, we acknowledge that, that they faithfully reflect the truth of God's Word as it's been handed down to us, right? Why are those so important? They're important because they help us to understand what does God's Word tell us? What truths does it convey to us that we need to hold on to? And how do we follow those? How do we follow those in our own lives? How do we follow those in the life of the church? So the confessions help us understand what we need to know in terms of doctrine. What do we need to believe? What do we need to do? Right? At the same time, they promote peace and unity. That's why we call them the three forms of unity. They help us to understand what we need to believe as Christians. At the same time, they don't cover everything, and so they show us that we can disagree on certain things and still be united, still be brothers in the Lord. That's true within the congregation. That's true among congregations. By adopting those confessions together, it increases our unity. It helps to ensure our peace. Right? Likewise with our church order. Our church order teaches us what we ought to do as a congregation, teaches our office bearers how they're called to behave, how they're called to uh, lead the church. That promotes peace within the congregation. We know what to expect from our elders. We know what our deacons are going to do. We know what our, our minister has uh, promised to do. It unifies us, and it unifies us with the other churches. We carefully define, these are the things that we're going to do, these are the things we're not going to do when there's a, de a debate or a, a disagreement, here's how we're going to handle it. If someone strays, here's how we're going to try to call them back, and if they won't come back, here's how we're going to do it. By laying all of that out, now our church order is very simple, it's only 66 articles, right? I think it's like 12 pages front and back, and that's if you include all the appendices that help explain little things. Really quite simple. It's not very much, but it's the important things, the essential things that are needed to keep us unified, to keep us at peace, to teach us what we need to do. Likewise with the little rules and policies that a congregation adopts about how people become members, about how we're going to uh, deal with the use of the church building. Those are intended to foster peace and unity and to help everybody know what they're called to believe or to do. Now the key in all of these is that they're to be established on the rock of God's Word. Remember what we heard in Matthew 7, at the end of our reading. Everything we do is built on a foundation. Right? That's true concerning what we believe. It's true concerning what we do as members of the church. It's true concerning our interactions with one another. Everything we do, everything we say is built on a foundation. Now, if what we're doing is reflective of the truth that God's revealed in His Word, then it's built on a foundation of stone, a solid foundation. You build a, a house on a stone, on a solid rock, it's not going to move, right? No matter what batters against it, no matter how hard it gets hit, it's going to stand firm. But you build on sand. My house is 
three miles that way. I don't know how far down you'd have to dig to hit something other than sand, but it's a lot farther than I'm willing to dig. Now the fact that my house has stood for 20-some years and hasn't moved tells me that the footings of the foundation are pretty deep. Because if you just dug down three feet and poured your footings, you'd be building on sand. And within a year, every wall would have cracks all through it. Within three or four years, things would be falling apart. You build on sand, it'll settle, and it'll settle unevenly, and pretty soon it, it falls into pieces. And that's what happens to us if we build on anything other than God's Word. And so if the rules that we adopt as a church are to build us together and hold us strong, they must be established on the basis of God's Word. And if we're trying to build on anything else, on tradition, on the opinions of men, on the trends of our society, it's going to fall apart. It's not going to hold firm and it's not going to hold God's people to what they need. And so that means, dear brother, elders and deacons, you need to take care concerning the rules that you establish. A multitude of rules isn't good. For one thing, we won't remember them all and we won't do them, right? They'll just be useless. But beyond that, we want to be careful that we're building carefully, that we're establishing a good foundation. We're calling God's people to stand on the basis of God's Word. Ephesians 4 says that God established the office bearers of His church, the elders, the deacons, the ministers, in order to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now, if we're going to be equipped for the work of ministry, it has to be on the basis of God's Word. So the confessions by which we teach the truth, my catechism students know that I'm always asking them to open their Bibles to this passage. Open your Bibles to that passage. Because if, if those confessions aren't rooted in the Scripture, and if we don't know they're rooted in the Scripture, then we shouldn't be confessing them. We shouldn't be holding firm to them. But if they are on that basis, if they're on that foundation, then we dare not depart from them. But likewise with our policies, likewise with our church orders, it has to be rooted on the Word of God. It has to lead us to that which will please God and that will unify God's people. However, our forefathers understood human nature. They knew that the heart of fallen man invariably will be tempted to depart from God's word, will be tempted to pursue, rather than fidelity to the truth, the pursuit of power, right? Or the pursuit of popularity, the fear of man. And so they warned us, not only must we establish the church on the solid rock of the word, we must eliminate from the church the sinking sand of human invention. That's the cautionary tone here. Not all rules that the church might adopt are necessarily okay just because the leaders of the church created them. Some rules might seem beneficial on the surface, but they end up hurting the church. Some rules would dishonor God by leading people astray from Him. Some rules would allow men to abuse the church by unrighteously increasing their power. And so we're called not to distrust our leaders, wasn't it Reagan who said, trust but verify? Right? Like the Bereans, we are to keep God's word open and to evaluate the rules of the church to ensure that they do comport with that word. 
What sort of rules must we reject? We can really boil it down to three kinds. Rules that promote doctrines that are not founded on God's Word. Rules that require worship not commanded by God. Rules that promote ethics not established in Scripture. You see the common point there, right? It always goes back to God's Word. That's our touchstone. That's what we use to evaluate it all. In each of those areas, doctrine, worship, ethics, the church can and should make rules, but only on the basis of God's Word. And if it's not based on God's Word, it should be rejected. Because, as our confession points out, rules that are not based on God's Word bind the conscience unrighteously. That is, they call men, they command men, they require men to do what God has not required of them. And that we may not do. As example, there are benefits to not consuming alcohol. Right? You avoid the temptation to drunkenness. You can't get drunk if you don't drink, right? You can save money. Alcohol can be expensive. It can potentially improve your witness, especially if you're hanging around a bunch of guys that are always drunk. So there can be good reasons to not consume alcohol. But as a church, we may not impose that as a rule. You know why? Bible never says to do it. In fact, Jesus' first public miracle was making wine out of water. And not just wine, but good wine. That wasn't grape juice. It was good wine. So there's nothing inherently sinful about consuming alcohol. Therefore, we may, we may not bind the conscience of man by saying you may not drink it. By all means, make that choice if you'd like, but we may not command that. Now understand, that's not just my opinion, nor that of the confession. God himself teaches that principle that we may not bind the conscience of men contrary to Scripture with regard to doctrine. Paul wrote in First uh, Timothy 6, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus and with the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. In other words, false doctrines, that which does not agree with Scripture, it arises from an ungodly heart, it causes ungodly division, it's not to be embraced. In fact, we, we heard in Titus 1, those who teach that which is contrary to Scripture, they, they need to be refuted. We need to show them where that's wrong. And they need to be silenced if they keep talking that. Because they'd be dividing the church over that which God has not commanded, that which God has not set before us. If with regard to doctrine, God's Word is uncompromising, even more so with regard to worship. Both the Old Testament and the New tell us that God is not ambivalent about the ways in which we worship. He doesn't want us to just do what feels good to us. He doesn't want us to do what will draw people in the door. He wants us to do what He has commanded, what is pleasing to Him. And so in Deuteronomy 12, for instance, we read, this is regarding worship, everything which I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. So when it comes to worship, we need to reject any rule that would remove from worship what God has commanded. For instance, singing the Psalms or reading the law. And we need also to reject that which would introduce into worship what God has not commanded. Like liturgical dance, for instance. So we need to be careful to ensure that, that our doctrine and our worship are founded only on the Word of God. Also, the ethics that guide our daily living. 
The heart of man has this insatiable desire to add laws, to add commands, to add boundaries beyond what God has added. But 1 Timothy 4 warns us that it is wrong to forbid men from enjoying that which God has created good. The only legitimate reason to reject something absolutely is God's commands. Understand, you can decide you don't like broccoli or Brussels sprouts, that's fine. What he's saying is you may not forbid them as though God had when he hasn't. He says, everything, this is 1 Timothy 4, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. We talked about this in catechism uh, last week. We did kind of a question and answer time. Somebody said, is it okay to be a Christian and a vegan? Hmm. Not a vegetarian, a vegan. It's okay to be a vegetarian. You can choose not to eat meat. I don't know why you would, but you can do that. You may not choose to follow the path of vegans in condemning those who eat meat or any animal byproducts. That's the difference. The difference between what I choose to consume and what I tell others it's wrong, it's immoral to consume. God made it good. We may not bind their consciences on that. So what then do we do when we see illegitimate rules entering or threatening the church? It happens at times. And the elders are called to establish the boundaries. Titus 1 gives clear instruction. When, when rules or teachings enter in that are not founded on God's word, the elders are to refute and to silence. They're to correct those who are teaching these wrong things, these things that go beyond God's word. And if they won't accept that correction, they're to silence them. That's hard. That's really difficult. But if they don't do that, they're gonna, it's going to divide the church. Right? Now, our elders are solid. I trust they're going to do that. But what if they don't? What if 10, 20 years down the road, our elders become a bit weak-wristed about those kind of things? They don't want to make waves. Well, then you deacons, as those whom God has raised up as leaders in the church, though this is not really your area, you still are called to be the lesser magistrate of sorts, to be the one that stands up and says, well, if the elders aren't going to do it, then we are. Right? But what if, what if all the office bearers fall to the side? That happens throughout church history. We see the, the office bearers start going in a worldly direction. The church starts following them in that worldly direction, adopting rules that are contrary to God's law, to God's commands, and neglecting that which God has clearly commanded. What then? Well, folks, then it's up to us. It's up to the rest of you to call them to account, to show them from God's word, this is what must be done, this is what must not be done. And if they won't listen to appeal formally to the consistory, and then to classes, and then to synod, urging them to turn back from their way, ultimately, if they, if they won't turn, then the faithful must come out from among them. Pray that that doesn't happen. Pray that the church might not be divided in that way, but know that when it is, if the ones who leave are standing firmly, clearly on God's word, they're not dividing the church. Those who have established ungodly rules within the church have. One final point, and we're going to be brief on this, but it's important. What of those who reject the godly rules of the church? 
It happens. A member refuses to submit to the elders over him. Someone insists on teaching doctrines that are false. Another person recognizes no authority except himself. What then? How does Christ want us to respond? Well, Scripture says we need to exclude from the church the corrupting yeast of rebellion. We've talked about that a little bit under Article 29. But it's also mentioned here. Because one of the purposes for the rules of the church is that we might learn to obey God. Now, it bears repeating, we're called to submit to our elders. Not because of who they are, but because of who set them over us. Hebrews 12 says, What son is there whom a father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and lives? Our God disciplines us for our good. Sometimes He disciplines us by the circumstances He sends. Sometimes He disciplines us by the consequences of our sin. And sometimes His discipline comes by the hand of the shepherds He sets over us. The elders. As we learn from them, God is drawing us closer to Himself. He's molding us into the image of Christ. And He does so with a reason. Again, from Hebrews 12, He says, Our fathers, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. He's trying to increase our holiness. When the elders come and they speak to you in family visiting, and they apply God's word to the life of your family. They're helping to mold and shape you as a family into the image of Christ. When the elders come to you as an individual and they confront you about your sin and they show you from God's word why it's wrong and what repentance needs to look like, they are God's instrument in molding and shaping you into the image of Christ, in drawing you back into the sheepfold. If you refuse, you're not rejecting them. You're not offending them. You're offending God. Because they showed you where God's word would have you turn. How he would have you live. Understand the purpose of church discipline. Kids, please. When, when God disciplines us through our elders. The purpose is that he would be glorified as we learn to follow after him. That the church would be warned that sin is not something God overlooks but also that the one sinning would be drawn back to God. Not, back, not just back to the church, but back to God. That's important. So that means, elders, you need to remember, as hard as church discipline is, as much as we don't want to see the sin that we saw, it's essential for the well-being of God's people. And so what we saw in Titus 1, verse 9, when necessary, when sin takes root, you must rebuke it. Rebuke it in love. Rebuke it by showing it in showing the contrary in Scripture. But rebuke it. Silence it. Bring it to light. Because unless you do, you're allowing them to think it's fine, that God is fine with them, rebelling against Him, and He's not. So teach them. If necessary, rebuke them. And if they still refuse to hear, remember that God is the one who is offended by their sin, that God is the one from whom they are departing. And therefore, 1 Corinthians 5 tells us, ultimately, if they won't listen to God's word, if they won't submit, 
They need to be cast out. Because they need to see that in choosing their sin rather than choosing Christ, they have separated themselves from God. Separated themselves from life. Separated themselves from the eternal kingdom. That's hard. That's painful. But it's the wound that heals. Because it's by means of that discipline that God has ordained to draw them back. And what a wonderful, glorious thing it is for the church to embrace the one who has gone astray for a season, but then has come back and has submitted himself to Christ. Now, beloved, in in all of this, understand it is God's authority that the rulers of the church seek to apply. It is God's glory that the rulers of the church seek to magnify. And it is the good and the maturity and the holiness of God's people that the rulers of the church are called to pursue. We confess that God calls the church's rulers to apply His commands. Let us do that with joy. And let us pray that God would use those whom He has set over us to increase our peace, our unity, and our ability and desire to follow after Christ our King. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have not left us each one alone to figure out what You would have us do, how You would have us live. But instead, You have given us leaders, leaders, 